0: This was such a huge problem back when we were working on Crash is we could not figure out genre wise what to call this game or, or how to define it, you know. Which is why we're kinda it's kinda nice to be making a sequel because we can just be like, it's it's a sequel kinda to like that, that game. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Potter. Scotch. laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 377 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the tools
1: programmer.
0: I'm Sam and I'm the artist. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today's August 19th, 2020 Before we get started, we have a warning. There's going to be profanity on this show. Curses too. Swears. All kinds of words. So uh, if you're not into that, then, you know, you you just don't have to listen. Uh, I would just like to thank our supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net. Thank you very much for uh, your recurring donations to support the podcast. Uh, All right. Now, I can't believe we just got straight through that. (laughs) I was was holding (laughs) it back, you know. Holding it. I'm uh, I'm, I'm so proud. I'm so proud. (laughs) This is one of those rare occurrences. Uh, All right. All right, fellas, we got a few things to talk about today. One is Cult of the Lamb. Mm-hmm. So, so we do a thing on our podcast called the nail called Nail or Whiff, where we talk about a game or a book or whatever, and not about whether it's good or bad, but just. Did they succeed at what they were trying to do? Mm-mm. Did they nail it or did they whiff? And so, we can also talk about if we like what they tried to do, right? But that's yeah, a separate- But then that's just personal that's preference a at that thing. point. Yep. Yeah. So uh, what do you got, Sam? Yeah. So
2: I played Cult of the Lamb. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with it, it's, uh, it's basically a cult simulator slash action roguelike game. So you think about a game where you basically dive into random dungeons- Plus a game where you are trying to recruit and organize a you know, cult of followers and you kind of smash them together. Um, that's what that's what the game is. Uh, thematically, it's got this sort of – I don't know if anyone remembers those Happy Tree Friends cartoons. Oh, yeah. They're really oh, grotesque no. but adorable sort of thing from early internet those days. Were, yeah, those were, those were horrible. Yeah, yeah. absolutely horrifying. So if you you don't
1: know what that is, I don't even think I recommend looking at it. No, don't
2: look at (laughs) it. It's basically ultra violence, but with like little adorable cartoon creatures. So this is actually has a similar vibe to it. It's less, it's a little less disgusting, but very much still on the like, wow, I can't believe that that happened. Um, In that you are, you play as a lamb, basically a sacrificial lamb who becomes the god-appointed leader of this rising cult, and. You do stuff, like you do blood sacrifices, you do all sorts of like weird, spooky shit that you would do in a sort of a demonic occult cult situation, Um, but as this adorable lamb, and then all of your followers are these adorable other, you know, creatures. And Mm -hmm. I got to say, so one, they nailed it. So if you're into sort of roguelikes, uh, action games, and or the more of the kind of simulator aspect of something like that, if it sounds fun to build your own cult, I guess, to you, you could, of course, yeah, you got to do it. Um, is it even so? There's if, like a there's
1: like a management part for like your cult thing, and then mm-hmm. is it like a twin stick shooter kind of a gameplay? It's, the-
2: it's more like a essentially like a dungeon crawler hack and slash sort of a thing. Okay, so yeah, you the the loop works by essentially you go out on these crusades, right? Which is your little going out and doing your action adventure part of it. Um, combat's really simple. It's not, and you could there's difficulty settings and stuff. So if you're not particularly into that then you don't have to do it too much uh, but then you come back home and essentially are using the devotion that your followers have like built up from praying at an altar for you uh to unlock new stuff and basically a tech tree and then basically have like a couple different kinds of currencies and a couple different tech trees essentially but they're all branded as you know ones from devotion from your followers one is from uh you know basically doing like sacrifices and stuff like that of your followers and all sorts of other goofy stuff so what I think is really really interesting about it. One is that, so the game's it's it's in 3D, but it is all 2D characters and 2D artwork, right? Um, the The studio who does it's called Massive Monster, uh, and they had, a, they had a previous game, um, I cannot remember the name of, but it, it basically does like a, uh, they, they have a really good use of 2D in Spine, I guess, is sort of the, mm. the point. And the previous game also is hilarious, like looking, and it's all such a really goofy shit going on. Um, and this sort of just seems to take it to the next level where the character animations and stuff it's all simple like all the arts what you call quote-unquote simple but the way that they've kind of piled it all together and then with a bunch of post-processing effects and really smart use of depth of field and some other stuff like that the whole thing just looks great like it looks really really good yeah Um, look at the screenshots it's got well also the thing so we've talked about in the past about you can get a
1: mismatch between the appearance of your game and therefore who comes to it and the gameplay experience when you're using cute stuff, right? Because cute yes. stuff signals like, oh, yeah, this is like a fairly chill, you know, whatever kind of experience. Um, I mean, not it's not as simple as that, right? But it can very often do that. And so if there's a huge mismatch and it comes in, it's like an impossibly difficult game or something uh, or super violent or whatever, right? Then that mismatch can basically get the wrong people into your game. Mm-hmm. And as I'm looking at the screenshots for this thing, it's really interesting because like... Like Sam, like I said, it's, it's about cute creatures and stuff, and the art mm-hmm. style is like cutesy. Very but cute. every single picture I'm looking at looks dark and spooky, right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they still made sure that, like, the vibe, while it is cute, the vibe is very much like spooky, cult, mm-hmm. like kind of
2: stuff. So it's yeah. weird. So, well, that's okay what I think is most interesting about it. So, one is that the overall design construction of like how all these loops interact with each other is just very smart. Like it's very smart. If you want to take time to be a kind of chill and just kind of build up your base or go fishing, like there's a there's a whole fish there's a fishing area. There's like a there's a dice mini game somewhere else. You could just go like play dice against some creatures mm-hmm. and like bet money and stuff. So it's a it's um, a triple A title because they've got games inside of games. Yeah, they got games yeah. inside <laughs> of games. So we're triple A at this point. Um yeah, I don't know if you can call them anymore. Um Triple I, do, I think is the yeah, triple the I term. They do a great job of of providing basically different speeds, right? Um and the just the number of activities that you can do continues to feel very, very. We talk about games that could sort of feel like they keep on opening up over time. And I think it probably was like maybe seven hours in where finally I was like, I think I'd like seen a basically seen all of the systems. Um, and most most interesting is that it's only like a twelve hour game. I say only, of course, but like it's a twelve hour experience. It's pretty. I wouldn't say it's like hard. At the end, you can keep on playing once you, you know, do your final thing. But um, it it's a shorter; it's like a really compressed overall loop and experience. So very much, it'll grab you by the face and kind of pull you along uh, for for the whole ride. Um, but I think is most interesting about it from a design standpoint is if you want to talk about the power of a theme to effectively tie together things that without a theme in place would be i think almost impossible to try to think through how to unify all of them i think it's a perfect example of this where what you've got here is a you have a you have a base building simulator with follower or with you know with little buddies and stuff who you have to monitor their happiness you have to like clean up their poop you got to cook for them etc you've got an Action brogue-like where you're running around doing pretty intense combat stuff that's kind of gets bullet bullet helly at certain times. Um, and being able to merge those two things together, there's it's not that it's not possible, it's just that there's like an infinite number of questions that you could be answered in an infinite variety of ways. Oh, yeah. And so picking a thing, well, a it's theme, like it's combining a slow, chill, kind exactly. of overall gameplay with a very fast, intense kind
1: as Yeah, trying to balance that because also for the audience who is usually coming for one or the other
2: of those experiences yes. and not both. Uh, so it's the, very challenging. Yeah, I think what the theme allows you to do and what the power of the artwork then allows you to do and bolstering that is to is to bring people in to do both because it's not about the whole time you're actually superseding whatever the loops are and you're sort of focused on whatever the theme is. Like I'm here to run this cult, like a, in, in all ways that a cult can be run. And I think that's what's fascinating about the theme application here is you have stuff like you eventually missionaries, you know, who you're sending off to do stuff for you asynchronously from your base. You can summon demons. You could turn your followers into little demons that then come with you on your missions. Uh the action roguelike portion is framed as this, like as the crusading kind of portion of, of the game, right? And so the the frame that they've chosen and just how far they managed to go with it, I think, is just really, really effective for making a particularly challenging kind of design mash up into one where the whole thing really just kind of sings really effectively. And I think it's because it's actually under this umbrella of like what would it what would it really what would be all of the activities that you could do if you were running a cult more or less, right? Uh especially <laughs> in this sort of you know more fantastical cartoonish violence version of it. Uh and they 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 just nailed it. They just nailed it. So I'd highly recommend.
0: So it, is there some kind of a, like an e- end point of like what's yeah. your real goal? So you
2: basically you, you get you're the final lamb essentially you get executed and then you are given the uh the basically like the hat the little cult hat of uh this god who has stopped you from dying who is basically chained in the underworld so he's stuck so then you are mm. become that god's emissary to raise his cult etc and your goal is to defeat the four other gods who were the ones who chained this one and then to basically turn your cult over to uh the you know the big god um And boss fights are big and fun and crazy. And yeah, it's about like a 12 hour thing. So
0: So you've got to, you've got to just defeat the other cults basically uh, become the one true religion of the, of the world. (laughs) It's very fun. So so at the end you graduate from cult to religion, I guess, because your God is the only one remaining. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Nice. Okay. So you recommend, I mean, it sounds pretty, it sounds pretty dope. It does sound dope. Yeah. And I, I, I like the idea of, it's something that we've talked a lot about in our designs of trying to find those, you know, multimodal games where it's mm-hmm. like you can go in and do something intense and fast paced and challenging. And then for a while, you know, go do something chill and slow paced that doesn't require such intense focus, you know. Um, and it's it's so difficult to to have both of those in a game and in a way that, that uh, feels like they both are fully realized, mm-hmm. you know. Like so often... You can see that people spend, like the developers spend lots of time on intricate combat systems and, you know, whatever. And then they'll have like a, you know, fishing or something like that. But it's just kind of, Over you know, there. Click a click a button and yeah. a fish comes out, right? Um, and so technically they've got it, but it's not fully realized, you know. And of course, like we're guilty of this in some of our games as well because like it's really hard to fully realize every angle of of a game that has so many layers to it, um, but it is something that we're trying to, you know, focus on more mm-hmm. as we get into Crashlands Two stuff is take that time to really flesh those things out. So yeah, I think it's really those cool. uh,
2: those thematic, you know, defining and finding a really good thematic overarching link is a, a big piece I think of the puzzle. I think it's why actually, like crafting and survival games tend to uh, be per, like a pretty interesting amalgamation of a bunch of different things uh, is because they're actually thematic more so than uh, genre-specific in a weird way, right? Like, survival, the idea of survival conceptually is a is a big umbrella theme, you know? Um, well, and it's really almost every...
1: Because the vast majority of video games are about, like, you know, not ki- kill or be killed, right? So <laughs> yeah, right in a video. sense, like, survival is actually... Of course, as a genre, it's more specific. It's more about, like wilderness survival i guess it's yeah it's, yeah, it's more yeah. about it being out in the world and yeah than it is like that but, but that is true though it's not there's not much of a genre but that's why I like arc it's fucking mm-hmm. fantastic right because then there's nothing like it thematically where you get to go ride dinosaurs, ride dinosaurs you know yeah and
0: I'd, I'd almost think about it i mean I, to me that crafting games are kind of misframed in a lot of ways because they're really item games like they're, just, they're games about getting lots of different kinds of items, and uh, the crafting part is just a—it's just a transformation. It's like take these three items, and they become this fourth kind of item, right? Um, and so, because like one of the things we talked about in in our, our uh, when we're working on original Crashlands was that was that when you buy stuff from a, a merchant in a, in a game, that that's really no different. Than a crafting system. It's just that mm-hmm. everything just uses one ingredient. Yeah, you which exchange is gold, one ingredient. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 You get yeah, you get money in the game and then you're quote crafting it by like giving up some gold and getting a weapon in mm-hmm. return, as opposed to getting like three logs, 10 sticks, and a rock and turning it into a weapon, right? Which is really just then it's like, okay, those are just different kinds of currencies that you're, you know, sort of using to buy uh, mm-hmm. this new weapon, right? And so it's really just a like crafting is just item conversions um, because yeah, when I think about is a an game
1: interpretation not an actual mechanism right? yeah
0: because when you think about a game like Eve Online mm-hmm. everything every spaceship in that game every weapon every everything is is made by players nobody calls Eve Online a crafting game a space crafting game right. When really that's the end, like crafting is the engine that drives literally everything that happens in the multiplayer universe of that game, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's so interesting that some games get branded as a crafting game um, when crafting is similar in importance or even less important than it is in other games where crafting is a huge driver, right? Mm -hmm. And those games are just like, oh, that's just an MMO, right? (laughs) Or whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So I don't know, it's... Yeah, I think the it's, thing that puts something into the crafting genre is
1: more about the resource collection within the yeah. it's cause it's the cause like because in Eve, you like you're still like buying, like using currency, right? To buy the stuff that you used to make. No, your there's ship or,
0: mining. Like you you get ships and you go on your mine asteroids and you go like exploring and hacking little like relic sites to get mm. things out of them and uh um, yeah, so that's go, a crafting go, game. Go, like, then. I mean, it's yeah, it's straight up a crafting game, like through and through, but it's 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 not framed that way because I think the crafting is is far removed from a relatable experience where like people are going and like chopping some wood and like getting a rock and like <laughs> right. tie, tying it together with a stick. But at Eve, it's like you're using a mining laser and using blueprints and factories and stuff. Right? It's like it's so abstracted that it doesn't feel like you are building something. It's more like you're just doing a, you're setting a bunch of things in motion. You know, with a bunch of materials, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it is yeah. It's funny how much the context
1: and then kind of the you know original prog- the original progenitor of a of a genre like how much that dictates mm-hmm. what gets categorized that way. Even though like functionally, because it's kind of like survival also as a category that's almost always paired with crafting, right? Mm-hmm. Like because it's about like being out in the world and changing it and trying to Make stay alive over do- there. But yeah, but to the point where you can then play a game like. Original Crashlands, which is not a survival game because we—you're going to survive. You're going <laughs> to survive. Like it's, there's no permadeath. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no hunger. Yeah, there's the, we, don't, we don't actually have any of the trappings of survival, and so we actually intentionally use "survival" to describe it to try to offset people's default,
0: yeah, but that doesn't categorization. That which,
1: <laughs> 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 but try to like make people stop. That like, what the fuck is that, right? Uh, but yeah, but it doesn't matter because that was actually one of the things that that made it difficult. What's O.G. Crashens from a marketing perspective is people would see it and then because you know top down cartoon crafting game out in the wilderness they're like oh this is Don't Starve which is the sort of classic survival crafting game like in in that view and stuff right Mm -hmm. Um, and we're like no 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 like the actual experience doesn't feel anything like that because it's not survival right but people couldn't couple. Yeah. Crashlands is survival, survival in
0: the same way that, like, Zelda is a survival game. Or Diablo. You know. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, in the sense that, like, you go in the world and you get stuff and uh, you there's stories and quests and sometimes you craft things, right? Uh, but yeah, and then, like, coming into Crashlands 2, um, crafting is is, of course, at a focal point of the game. But there are other ways to get things, right? Because there is story. There are you know, quests and that kind of thing. So, um, yes, yeah, this weird kind of mix of like, it, it, this was such a huge problem back when we were working on Crashlands is we could not figure out genre wise what to call this game or, or how to define it. You know, it's why we're kind of, it's kind of nice to be making a sequel. Cause we can just be like, it's, it's a sequel like to that, that game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so now we would do anchor point. Uh, right, let's talk about Crashlands 2 a little bit, uh, before we get into questions. Mm. So, This week has been pretty cool. We, um, so for the past, I think, uh, two weeks, we've been working on putting together the questing system in the game. So, uh, the start of last week, it was all about just design and kind of like talking through and figuring out what is a quest? How does it work? Um, how does the player interact with quests in the world? How do characters convey dialogue and information, you know, all that stuff, um, so, over the first part of, of last week, it was all about getting that put together in the game changer, which we talked about, I think, on last week's mm-hmm. episode. Um, and then this week was all about refinement of those systems and, uh, and adding in all the things that make them actually playable. Because, like, just because you have quests doesn't mean that, that it's a good experience if, for example, they don't get saved to disk. Between gameplay <laughs> yeah. sessions, yep. if every time you boot up the game, you got to re, you got to see every quest all over again, that's a nightmare, right? So there's lots of extra layers of systems that have to be put in there so that the quests are, you know, playable. Um, so that's what this week was all about. But one of the kind of uh, kind of goofy things that that in retrospect is obvious, but uh, in the moment may seem just like an annoyance is this idea of, of testing the quests.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So quests are a really hard thing to test because they chain together. They are location dependent, they're character dependent. like if, if you know if if Steve needs to give you a quest and he's over on you know an island 300 miles away, how are you gonna test that quest? Mm-hmm. Uh, you you got to be able to get over there to Steve. But then what if Steve's quest actually requires, 16 other quests Mm -hmm. to be completed before you get there right how do you well then on
1: top of that like also like the quests might check your inventory to see if there's something in there Mm -hmm. you know like so you have to make sure that you have but also even if you do bypass and like jump right ahead to that island like you know go to god mode transport yourself whatever yeah how do you test that you actually could have gotten over there if you hadn't done
0: that yeah you know so yeah and so there are what makes quests a very fraught testing environment is that they're made of just these layers and layers of interdependencies Um, and being able to easily jump around into different snapshots of states of the questing environment is really important. So by that, I mean saying like, all right, I want to test that quest. Uh, So you need to be able to jump to that quest, which means that if that quest had a bunch of quests before it, then you would – then those would have to also be set as completed – automatically, right? Because that's what it would be if you got to that point. And if um, that would have given you loot and all that kind of then stuff. You gotta, like, then you got to that get loot? those items. And, and if if like the state of the world had changed because some story elements happened in those prior quests, the state of the world needs to be updated, right? And so, um, so all those things need to be true. So in the original Crashlands, um, I don't think we had any systems like that until like... Three months after we had most of the campaign in, right? I think it was at the Uh, the end of the campaign being in,
2: we kept on running into some situations where we needed to be able to – because I was basically like three – it took about three and a half or four months, I think, to put that campaign together once we had the
0: the tooling for it. Yeah, Uh, and And once we had like 350 quests – that, about that point, we started thinking yeah. about adding something.
2: Because basically what I was doing is I would, I would write the quest and test it, and I was sort of was writing them in linear fashion and testing them in linear fashion. And so then – so I sort of just write it. I was like, write it, test it, and then now it's, it's saved, and you're done with it. So I hope it's good. Move on to the next one, uh, which had yeah, retrospective. Horrifying in terms of – It's pretty uh, wild. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, we, and we did most of – like, most of our,
1: uh, like, testing and editing and stuff just happened in the editor – not in the game at all because it was because the editor just showed you all like so it's basically we were we were just testing like the chain like does the chain actually exist and do what it's supposed to and like via my eyeballs is this like behaving the way that i think that it's supposed to right yep but yeah everything was tested basically once as it was developed in the actual game context uh yeah and then we got down to like our final beta test and like people reported fucked there up bugs some, and like, all this kind of yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then we're trying to like figure out how to replicate it to fix it, which means we're trying to like get to a quest and like, yeah, it was, yeah,
0: that was yeah. it was yeah. hard. Not good, Yeah. And so it's easy as a developer to be like, quests are in, the system is in, it's, you, we can start adding quests. It's fine. Um, and to look at something like developing an additional system that allows you to jump around and test quests and force set them to different states and stuff. um, And view that as kind of like bells and whistles. Like that's just some kind of like developer quality of life thing. Um, But having gone through it in the past, you know, I look at it as like this quest system, I don't even consider it to exist unless we have that tool, unless we have that interface. Because we shouldn't be adding quests to the game at all if we can't test them, if we can't verify that they're working as intended. So, uh, so this is pretty cool. So one of the things we talked about, um, in some of our episodes a while back was this interface tool that we developed called Cake Frames, which took a couple of months to put together. Um, and it's, it's basically, it's a, it's a way of, of describing in-game interfaces, um, using a standardized format. So all of the interfaces in Crash Nines 2 over time have, have become Cake Frame interfaces. Um, and it's this—it's this way of just easily describing what you want the interface to look like, and then it just gets parsed by the game, and then it gets rendered as as you would expect. It's a lot like we, how HTML works. Yeah, it's, it's kind yeah, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of like we put together our own little HTML-style language, and instead of a web browser, it's the game, right? Um, and so that was one of those things that it took so long to do mm-hmm. and also your brain was probably twice as wrinkly when you were done because yeah there's some tricky problems in that yeah because you know one of the one of the hardest things about interfaces is how interdependent they are so if you say like yeah I want this button to be in like the bottom left corner of this window right Well, okay but what if there's other stuff down there how does it sort itself you know to make sure it doesn't overlap and like how do you know where the window is and how do you make sure the button is clickable and like what even is a button what makes something a a button versus a drop down menu you know and so there's just all these things that you kind of take for granted when you're just clicking around on web pages that you have to actually define um so took a long time to build that stuff uh, with the hope of like being a- – with basically saying being able to easily build interfaces should dramatically expand our ability to make our games, right? Yep. And so this quest thing was a great example of that where um, in, in literally just a day, uh, I was able to put together the system of force-setting quests to different states and jumping around – and build an interf- a developer interface that allows us to visualize the states of all the quests and actually interact with that system behind the scenes. Uh, so it was just like, easy peasy, one, two, done. That's uh, the sort of that, thing. That thing. That we waited like months and months for Crashlands, and then we did do it in the original game. It took weeks to like figure out all the things to be able to test the quests. Now it's like, one day, one and done. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh yeah i
2: think that's that's yeah. been wild to me about this the past two weeks in particular seeing again the quest system as the first kind of new system coming alive inside of the game changer completely um and with you know cake frames up and running and all this other stuff and it's like the, the speed with which we actually get to move to the next state of these things do some testing and answer the next questions and then just basically already have that done then again within like a day uh it's, it's it's just ridiculous like it's we talked about the, the goal was to move it so the questions were more about what specifically to do no longer so much about just how the fuck do we do it right um, about yeah about the cost and the and the how yeah. you know uh, and so it's been it's been fascinating I think seeing that actually play out now in the past couple of weeks and I think the, the there's always this small bit of terror I think all of us were nursing there for like that whole. Six months, where it was like you never know. While developing a tool or something like that, if there's going to be one of those roadblocks you hit at some point that makes it
0: impossible to actually utilize, right? This has happened.
1: I've run there into were, many of these over. There the were oh, quite that. a few
0: points years, when yeah. working on the game changer and on cake cream stuff where it's just like, you're mm-hmm. like, this yeah. is wrong. Yeah. This is wrong. Like we shouldn't like we shouldn't spend two more months working on this tool mm-hmm. because because what if I can't solve this you know, this next yep. three or four problems that I know are coming, right? Uh, it's terrifying. Well, it's honestly- <laughs> yeah, because uh, it
2: would just amount to end up, you know, you don't actually have infinite time uh, until you have infinite runway, which we're, we're not there. So you end up in this position where you're like, man, this could, if I can't figure out a way around this, then uh, this is all for all for not. Because if the tool doesn't manage to do all the stuff, oftentimes it doesn't deliver on the thing it's supposed
0: to deliver on. And then, you're well, gonna, I mean, yeah. And you worry about like, yeah, if you if you burn six months working on this thing and then it turned out to not pan out, then you've just lost six months of dev time on your game, and yeah. you've made your your game's code base more complicated because yeah. it's you've been integrating a tool that doesn't work. Uh, and then who knows? Maybe you miss your launch window. Maybe your runway runs out. Like you sink the company. Oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, not
2: there's,
0: there's a it's time is time is money, and spending a lot of time on something means you know, potential financial danger uh, if you're not so, careful. So, I think what's been you know, really just, I think,
2: very buoying, I know for me personally too, has been seeing the actual effects of it downstream because it is, the, the part of the thing was like, yeah, you need to take less time when, you know, putting an interface together. So it'll take like four days, it takes like two hours or something. And it's, that's all well and good, but I think what you don't realize is just that it's actually a lack of frustration that's showing up while working on these things. That is to me an even bigger piece of it, where it still allows you to be flexible and play essentially, or to iterate on the fly while making the thing. It's why um, the work experience is actually needs to be the priority, right? Is yeah, what it's
1: like to do the work to make the product, right? Because because what it is frustrating because sounds like to your point, like in lots of contexts, like yeah, two hours way better than two days, but also two days probably fine, right? Mm-hmm. In, like so many contexts, but it's still. That's a a much bigger investment, but also if it's frustrating the whole time, then it has an even more outsized effect. So not only is it already like 10 times more time, but that time is going to move a third as fast, right? Yeah. And kind of fuck the rest of like the days afterwards and so on, right? So that you end up not only just having a bad experience with all of that, but the the cost of doing it is so high and you know it's high up front and you're already kind of perseverating on the fact that it's not Mm -hmm. going to be a good experience, right? And so your default is to then not do it. And so you take these kinds of systems that we're talking about here, we're like, we're saying that if we don't have a good way to manipulate and explore quests, then doing QA on them, debugging them, all that kind of stuff becomes really hard, right? But those are still like things you can like manually just throw hours at to like overcome Mm -hmm. those, Right. And so in a case where this was hard, that might have been the path that we went down. So then we said, or we just did it later. Either way, there would be a time period where we just didn't have that. And we just would rely on the people making quests to throw the hours at it to try to figure out how right. to like debug it. right? And so now you've translated a thing that was going to be a bad experience for one person into a thing that's a bad experience for everybody else. And, well, and that it just person, means
0: you right? just get less of it because if something, is, of it. if something is hard or something is a bad experience, you just will do it less. Yeah, right? it's it's you you don't you don't you know it's like if you think about your your toolbox, you got all your different tools in there, right? It's like all right, well, if one of your wrenches just has like a floppy you know piece on the end of it, they're like it doesn't actually hold on to the bolts, right? <laughs> they're like okay, well, like. I'm only going to use that wrench as a last resort. If all, like, if I have no other <laughs> options, you know, um, I'm. A, that's the only time I'm going to grab that wrench out of the toolkit because it just sucks to use, right? And so that's that's what ends up happening here is that if it's super easy and fun for us to build interfaces in the game, then we actually can. We just will build interfaces that allow us to make our development lives easier, right? If we're like, man, I really wish I could see this thing or I really wish I could interact with like this system in the game as a developer and like see what it's doing and have some like ways to manipulate it. Well that's an interface problem. Seeing things and manipulating data is like the data's already there. It's, yeah, it's already in the game. You it. just need to be able to see it. So if you if you can make an interface in an afternoon very easily uh that just does all those things and then it's ready to go, then you're gonna that's gonna be one of the first tools that you grab, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so and you're and to, you're gonna
1: do it. You're not gonna put up with this stuff that's frustrating because that, like you can't see this information you want, right? So you're not gonna just put up with that. You're gonna
0: you go solve like, it. I'll just, so, I'll just do that.
1: Yeah, I think this this thing that gets lost and we, and we this topic comes up a lot because we're always you know talking about tooling and stuff, but this gets lost all the time in discussions that people have about about whether or not you should be investing in improving your work experience versus using that do time that. to push you know to, to yeah quote unquote do the work right. And just not, not trim that jam part of it
0: and push forward. Yeah,
1: because and the, and this, the joke is always like, oh, you could spend six hours to you know save five minutes, right? And people joke about that disparagingly because they don't realize that that's it's not just time, right? It's also everything about your actual life experience, and that has so many downstream consequences. But it's also in what you end up deciding to do with that time. Because people treat it just like oh, you just move the time to one place, right? Yeah. and that's all that happens. It's
0: the Jevons paradox. If you made, exactly. if you made a thing way easier, you're going to use it and more. Better, then you're going to use it more. So the time saving is actually way, way more than you would think. Like if like yep. it's something that we found one of our first kind of like things of stumbling across this was when we first built the game pipe and our automated patch notes. Right, it's like we we would deploy mm-hmm. a patch like on Fridays. basically um, in the past because and patch notes were written by hand and i built the, i deployed the patches with my machine so like i wasn't programming while that was happening because it uses all your cpu to compile the game and stuff right so it's like if it takes a half hour and you've got to write a google doc every time you do a every time you deploy a patch and if if all you think about is okay well should we invest a bunch of time to cut that one hour, you know, down to a minute. Well, it's really only going to save us an hour a week because mm-hmm. we're only doing one patch a week, right? It's like, okay, well, yeah. Except once we automated it, we were doing. Well, now we're doing like three patches a day, right? <laughs> yeah, because we well, can. And, and Seth so, doesn't think about it. It's not. It's
1: not. Yeah. it doesn't go into any decision making you do anymore, except for just the like, oh, just is just, this? do I have something for me to test? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, deploy and so, done. Now, the part of it that matters to you in your role, which is I've made features. I want them tested, right? Deploy. Deploy, right? You're getting yeah. what you need out of the feature and, and nothing more. There's no additional cost, right? And that's changed. And I mean, if you think about how much we've invested into our game pipe like system, right? That's been basically sure's job for two years yep. of time, yep. like, collectively. Uh, and that's a, I mean, that's a huge investment, right? Mm-hmm. But the gains so we get from it. it is just so is so valuable. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing <laughs> with like hey, we talk about spending six months, right? Like building the the this UI tool and the game changer, right? And that is an enormous investment for a company mm-hmm. to make because human time extremely expensive, right? And uh, and it's easy if you just like if you were just to compute the numbers, you'd be like, holy shit, that's a big number, right? This seems like such a risky, absurd thing to do, right? But the reality is like the the way that changes everything about. What we then do for the rest of time after that is so enormous that looking at it as anything but an investment, right, is the wrong lens. If you're just thinking about it as a cost and only thinking about it in like one-to-one time savings, right, and nothing else. There is a
0: hidden downside, though. Mm. Okay, so bear with me on this. All right. Once your tools get really, really good, then you can do anything, right? Anything you want to do, you can do it. Which means that whatever you end up doing is exactly what you thought was the best thing to do. (laughs) Right? Oh, it's
2: on you, baby.
0: It's And now if that doesn't work. (laughs) You can't blame anything anymore, <laughs> right? You got to be like, "Man, I like I was unconstrained. I didn't I didn't just like do the best with what I had because I had <laughs> everything. Whatever <laughs> I wanted to do, I made that happen, and boy did I fuck that up." <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there is a psychological burden that comes with with like the responsibility of having yeah. good tools, is your decisions are yours alone. I mean, you know? I, know you're, I know you're joking about the two of but it's actually very true. It's real. It's very real, which is like...
2: Yeah. Because where we're at, too, with with Crash Institute dev stuff is... Uh, basically, the the only thing that you could say that as far as, like, an upfront decision that we had made that we could have made differently would be something like being in 3D, right? Like being in Unreal or yeah, something. Yeah, or like, being multiplayer or something. Or multiplayer, yeah. But at, so outside of those two things which are admittedly big, but outside of those two things, within within the, kind of the scope of, of, you know, a 2D kind of open world adventure game and with the tooling we have, it does feel like we're in that we're in that spot where it's very much uh if this whatever we want to do. <laughs> yeah, if this does if this does not work, it's because we made a bunch of stupid decisions, not because mm-hmm. we were running up against problems that couldn't be solved or that was oh, we had to hack around this thing because it was too much of a pain in the ass or whatever. you know Yeah, we'll talk about scope creep too, right? Because when all scopes seem manageable, then you
1: can really run into some scope creep problems, right? Because still yeah. everything has cost, right? But it's but it's moving yeah. the cost to where it used to be, which was which we're you know used to reasoning about, which is it's really hard and really costly to make the feature work, right? Mm-hmm. And now we're moving the space, to like the hard space somewhere else, which is making a system whose content all works really well together in sort of an almost arbitrarily complex collection of arrangements, right? Because that's what that's what we're creating with Crashlands do. Like, that's actually moved from a technical problem to a design and testing really problem, did, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But mostly design and because as you're saying we can just if we can design it we can build it right but should you that because should you you, know, should well, you do and we well, it's we're also hard. so i think actually it's actually really good that we did all this while also building crash lanes too because building crash lanes too constrains us at least to a degree by the fact that it has, <laughs> having it, it be, be kind it has of to like, like the original, original <laughs> yeah that so is, we're sort of. Yeah. I think if we hadn't, if we would just set out to build all this stuff and build a new IP and a new gameplay, oh,
2: that's where you usually do. Just end up. That's, in open water. For, oh you know, yeah, we would have run out of no, there's no land uh, around. Yep, just it, out at sea in a yeah. beautiful. Yeah, pond. well,
0: yeah. Our, our design, <laughs> I mean, our design style very much is just ADHD. <coughs> like that's our yep, that's our yep. design method, right? It's like what seems interesting right now. Let's chase that shiny object. Yep. And of course, like if if you can chase that shiny object. To its destination in like three days, right? <laughs> then and you're working on a game for two years, it's like, man, how many, how many just random fucking things just end mm-hmm. up in the game that maybe Didn't need don't need to be need there because yeah. 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 Well, it's just diluting the uh, experience.
1: Well, it's in the combat complexity. Because the thing is, even though you can keep on making stuff, and if you make it in this like really nice modular way, so things can interact, and you don't have to be sp- You don't have to specifically describe like every interaction, right? Because they just happen as a consequence of the general rules. Then the commoneral complexity is what actually becomes the enemy because that is something you can't just like technology your way around, right? Yeah. Uh, You can make it It, easier to manage. But yeah, you can't, you can't just, it's like, if you have, if you have a hundred kinds of things, like completely, like, you know with their own rules and stuff, right, that all interact with each other. And within each one of those kinds of things, you have, you know, 20 variations that have slightly different tweaks to, like, how they follow the rules, right? In one screen, in, like, one moment of time in the game, right, if you've got, like, five random things put on there, like, any five, like, the degree of counter complexity here is, like, it's one of those numbers that, is so much bigger than like the number of atoms in the universe, kind of a thing. You know, like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like the number of ways things can unfold. And that grows so fast as you add kinds of things. Um, then that's the part where doesn't matter how good the tools are, right? Doesn't even matter how good the design is. Like you can you're just a,
2: a bunch of monkeys, you know, typing and a typewriter. Yep. 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 Can't conceive yeah. it.
0: So, you know, there is, there is a, there's a dark side. There's a dark yeah. side to tooling. There's I mean, another dark
1: side. Responsibility. Which, yeah. There's a there's another dark side too, though, which I experience quite a bit. Which is, I already have a low tolerance for a bad uh, worker experience, right? But and I invest a lot of time into making my like moment to moment work experience really good. My tolerance for then other experiences, because like, because mine just keeps getting better. The fidelity just keeps getting higher, you know. So my tolerance for experiences that don't match that keeps getting even lower than it already was once i've experienced what it can be like you know to do something else so that is the other i mean i'll take it i'll take that risk yeah i
0: mean it's something that i've thought about it's like man you know maybe i should just like slap together like a personal game project you know just like some goofy little mobile game or something mm -hmm. just for fun and then i think about the the decade of tooling that I've put together <laughs> uh-huh. in our Bscotch toolkit. And the, the idea of making a game without all that stuff is well, just horrifying. Like, I, can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't even fathom it. Uh, anyways, yeah. uh, let's get to questions. We've got time for probably like a question. So uh, highest upvoted question from podcast.bscotch.net comes from Mimibip Gorky, who says, what's the most difficult part about designing UIs? Man, what is your strategy to overcome it? Oh, oh this is pretty timely. So yeah, we've kind of we kind of covered it largely, but just to kind of to kind of summarize in my in my mind, uh, as a game programmer making UIs in, in game engines is really hard because game engines view UIs as optional; <laughs> like, mm-hmm. they're mostly built around around physics and collisions and the kind of stuff that gameplay is made of. But the interface, in my opinion, is one of the most important parts because that's how you actually engage with the game. (laughs) It's how you interact with it. It's the part between you, the person, and the game world, right? And uh, for the longest time, we did just do everything ad hoc where we need an interface, okay, we'll make a new standalone object and then we just start like coding up that interface like where does this thing need to be how many pixels away from this thing is it and just it was this very intricate thing uh which usually also involved sam putting together a design document where he would lay out all the different parts and then like we would we would have uh Lots of like slideshows almost. Mm-hmm. In some cases, actual slideshows. We would use like Google Google Slides or whatever mm-hmm. to show all Lock the up. different states of the interface. Yeah. Um, and all this stuff is difficult because interfaces look simple because what you see at any point in time is generally a frozen, ver- like a, a snapshot of that interface in a certain state. But considering all the different things that could be on that interface because it's showing different kinds of data, different buttons appear or disappear depending on what your options are. It's again combinatorial complexity. Yeah. So interfaces um, are, are difficult because they have so many components on them that are optional and that also are interrelated with each other both in terms of whether they exist or not and also just positionally. Like how big are they? Where are they? How do they not overlap each other? You know? And so um our solution to that ultimately ended up being to write a tool that allowed us to create interfaces. <laughs> uh just well, cake frames. But the important note know? there is what it what it's doing, which is it makes
2: it it makes the cost of iteration almost zero. That's yeah. that's the trick. Because the problem before is that UIs require they require tightness. That's it, just sort of a fact of like
0: a button needs to be in a particular place, needs to be mm-hmm. relative to a particular thing. Yeah. A particular and, and a button, you don't want a button to be like Four pixels higher than the button next to it. Yeah. You know, and so that's that just that's, that's literally unplayable at that point. Yeah. You
1: know? and, <laughs> so. I mean, it is like it is like, like your eyeballs expect something, you know. Oh, and it's yeah. very
0: distracting
1: if things are even just a little bit off. And you'll see that like if anybody has built a UI. You like you look at a thing that you made and you'll be like, I think I need like five more pixels on the top, like yeah. a padding on the top side because this just looks wrong, even though it technically it claims that they're equal or whatever, right? And like and a single pixel can make the biggest difference.
2: Yep. Yeah. So I think that the tricky bit then on basically on the implementation side is yeah, finding some tooling or doing something to make it so that the cost of iteration is low. And the reason for that is because UIs when once in use will oftentimes reveal other things that are needed. And you can get around this as much as possible ahead of time by doing these iterations outside of the game context or outside of wherever the context is you're using it. Using you know wireframing software. I know Adam's been using Figma a little bit. Um, yeah, Figma's I used, cool. Figma's really cool. It's it's definitely more complex in terms of being able to essentially be a pretty like a very good representation of the flows and stuff between yeah. all those sort different of things where you're not taking and the hierarchical relationships. You can make them so that they they reflect pretty accurately what the code will also be doing. Right. Which is very nice. Yeah. And then I use something more like Balsamic, which I think maybe just called wireframes now. I can't remember. Um, But it's just a a web application and desktop application. And the whole point there is it's it's purposefully um, sketch-like plugging together of of stuff to create your uh, wireframes. So the idea with those is that you then, as on the design side, you basically say, okay, who's using this? What for? What are we trying to accomplish uh, with this UI? Find some references. There's like a, the game UI database, which is awesome. If you are making a UI and you aren't looking at references, mm, yeah. you're wasting a fuckload of time because a lot of people s- smarter than you have solved these problems already. So you grab some references. Or,
1: or even just done really cool stuff that you didn't even... Yeah. doesn't even, it's not even that that solves the problem you had. It's just like a new way of looking at the problem that is also good, but much more interesting that you yeah. never would have conceived of. Yeah.
2: So basically you grab a reference once you know kind of what you're actually trying to do, who it's for, et cetera, get your list of all the things you need to actually have present on there, uh, wireframe it out. And then you walk through it with everybody who actually is going to be involved in the making, of the programming side, uh, particularly in the art side or whatever else uh, you get those obvious problems out of the way. Like, oh won't we actually need a follow-on drop-down from this? Or like, oh, what about this whole piece of information that you forgot? Or like, like not even necessarily that you forgot, but that we forgot. And sort of like, now that I'm seeing all this put together. And this is, I think, the thing people don't get is like, you typically can't get 100% accuracy on any of those mock-ups and stuff like that. Because once the thing is alive, it naturally, you're sort of moving the the available thinking space about the problem outward, sort of clearing out some fog of war as you build forward yeah. a little bit. Well,
1: because you uh, mostly focus on the golden path, right? Which is which is you, you sit down, you, you know what you want people to be able to do. And so you imagine a way that a person will work through a series of interactions to accomplish those things, right? So then you try to construct a thing that makes those things easy to do. What's really hard to see... Is what you also enabled, right? Yes. Uh, and what will end up being confusing because you come and you ask, like, can I do the thing that I want to do that I designed this to do? Or you well, you know exactly how those map onto each other. And so somebody else not only won't know what they even can do, right? So they won't even have that to start with. But they also will see all the other stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. Without, so they're not coming in being like, I want to do this. I bet this can do this, and like, laser focus on the thing, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, so, yeah. So in the design phase, you have to like take that into account, and then try like take a step back about not just the golden path, and try to figure out, okay, how does the user even end up here, and like what are they actually trying to do? I know what I want them to do,
0: right? Yeah. What do they know? What do they not know? What do they not know? What's going to be overwhelming to them? Yeah. Or,
1: and then yeah. and then just know that you're still wrong slash incomplete, right? And so mm-hmm. you have to then actually have people iterate on it and. And to the say point, trying. they can't, yeah, they need to actually experience that's why UI, it's it's always looked at as like UI slash UX, you know, user interface mm-hmm. slash user experience, like at least in the web world, those are always paired together. Sometimes it's different people who are focusing on those, but like anybody who's really into the user experience and the user interface side of things is thinking about both all the time. And the experience part is, you know, experiential. You have to be able to mm-hmm. experience it. And even just describing it, like going through slides on a deck, like that. Is a lot better than static images, but still isn't there. You know, like it's it gives you something. It expands the space of things you can learn, but there's nothing compared to actually giving somebody an interface that does actually
0: work. Yeah, this and then seeing them try to do it. Right. This kind of makes me think of our discussion about about why some games are described as crafting games and others aren't, even though crafting may be like more prevalent one than the other. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that. That you would separate separately describe the concept of user interface and user experience yeah. as if yeah. as if they are two different things, uh, and and also that that the user experience is always paired with UI as, like, a concept, but it's rarely paired with other things. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I focus on the database and the user experience. I'm yeah. a back-end developer that, <laughs> right. that thinks about what the data is actually going to be used for. Well, that's for. actually, <laughs> <basically> <laughs> the, in the web tech world,
1: <laughs> developer experience, which you know, is now shortened to DX, because it's the web, that you, yeah, so it's cool, got, they do... Yeah, which is... But, like, that wasn't even, like, a thing, you know, until literally a few years ago. And now, all of a sudden, like, all the major tech companies are, like, hiring developer experience people whose whole job is to, like, internally focus on...
0: But to me, that's like right. hiring a DevOps engineer. Yeah, it is. You're like, yeah, you're like, yeah, that guy's our DevOps guy. Yeah, and the you rest need of to us don't do it. DevOps. It's like, yeah. what, you, what are you talking about? Like, it's a, it's a philosophy yeah. of approach, and, and it's just like, what are it's you the thinking thing about is, when you do your job, yeah. right? Uh, it's like accessibility
1: and security, also, right? Like these are all just different layers of what it means for people to interact with stuff, right? And if you treat all of those as just like okay, that's a separate they're just, thing, they're just we'll do different jobs, we'll hire somebody yeah. else.
0: To <laughs> order, right? I, I build did... things with no regard to user experience, developer experience, <laughs> security, yep. or accessibility. I just yeah. make the thing, yep. right? And then I then it's everybody else's job to figure like h- yeah. how to make that work. How could that possibly? How could you yeah. possibly make a good thing? And this is with why that approach. Design
1: and making products is very hard, right? Mm-hmm. Because you technically can make it happen with lots of people who are all experts in one thing, and historically that's how people did stuff, right? But there's a reason why most user experiences for most people. Are clunky Mm -hmm. and and then once you get outside of most people because it's it's somebody else's job (laughs) there's also a reason why most things are insecure and it only takes a little bit of like knowledge to find a way through right and it's because as soon as you separate all these things out then it has to be so i think that's been like to the kind of final answer on this iteration aspect of what we're doing with um with uh, crashlands 2 is that we've we've removed all of the distance between us needing an interface to accomplish something and it technically existing in its context, right? Mm -hmm. So SAM still does go through a design phase like externally, right? Mm -hmm. But
0: it very rapidly and neatly maps onto the code. Yeah. And, and it doesn't have to be hyper-specific because it's so easy to up update. Yeah. Like, like back back when we were doing it, like, Sa- Sam would have to specify, like, down to the pixel, like, how big this is, what color this is, what, you know. And now we yeah. can just so easily change any of that stuff Yeah, that it can be more like, conceptually, this is basically how this thing is laid out. Here's a mm-hmm. quick sketch. Yep. Uh, and and then, then the two of them can iterate on it because it's not that
1: Sam's waiting for Seth to go take a million years to implement something. It's so not yeah. that they... The two of them can then evaluate it as a consequence. Yeah, can Sam can present an initial thing that they can sit down together. Seth can spend 30 seconds, you know, like mapping the design onto some code, mapping iteration onto some code, refreshing, right? And then seeing the change happen. Uh, so that's yeah. Yeah, it's about so, it's about removing all the the movement between things yes. and making it so that a design can be an experience as quickly as possible, and that everybody involved is paying attention to. Both. Even if they are experts in one particular aspect
0: of it, they still need to be paying attention to all of it. Yeah. So just to kind of then to kind of wrap that up in terms of like something more practical, because of course what we did is, you know, stop production for a couple of months and build a user interface tool, which isn't necessarily your first option, right? Like we did that after like 10 years of mm-hmm. working on interfaces. Um so the the real move then is to look for commonalities. And tried to develop jigs, you know, develop mm-hmm. little little tools that you can use to solve the same kinds of interface problems over and over again. So, like, if confirmation boxes are something that you deal with a lot, which they are because you're a developer and everything mm-hmm. in the world has confirmation windows, mm-hmm. <laughs> then is there a way that you can make something that spawns a confirmation window? And that that's just a generic thing that you can reuse and, like, change how the confirmation window looks, right? Um because if you, if you can do that, then like, you've okay, you've solved the confirmation window problem. Do you have buttons? Okay, can you make some concept that's just a reusable button that you can make it look a little different and like change some things about it, change what it does? Um, so just try to solve all these little individual problems in reusable ways at first. And at the very least, that will help you kind of get over some of the initial humps of just how hard it is to to build these interfaces and then over time you may build up a library of knowledge enough that you can start to develop you know a, a tool that solves most of these problems or all of these problems kind of universally right uh, but first things first just try to you know just programmatically solve those those things yeah i mean if you're uh,
1: in a web tech this is exactly what frameworks are for like react and view and svelte and the, the ten new ones that I'm sure were announced this morning, because during, during this podcast they just keep on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like that's what they're for. They're for reusing stuff, right? Where you can generalize the concepts involved, so that you can then tweak a single existence of a thing to like match the specifics that you want. Um, I think. I think it was a question about the design or the implementation or both. It was the design side. Focus. Yeah, I think that that would actually be just a fun topic to talk about in like the next episode or something would be because uh, Sam and I also had a long chat a couple Fridays ago about design for a user interface that I was working on. Um, and we're coming, like he and I are coming to it from different angles because I'm coming from the web world. He's coming from the game dev world where what it means to do those things is different, right? And the, the goals are also different and also user expectations are different. Um, but also because I'm coming to it from a code first, design second, perspective because that's what i usually do and sam's going to see that way around and then and me and seth are kind of in a similar position but since sam and seth have always worked together so much they're more you know meet in the middle so i think it could be an interesting just like
0: all right we'll put a pin in designing
1: uis what is that what is that like what do we how do we how do we even
0: as opposed to like what's hard about it just like how do we literally
1: everything is hard about it is i think the short answer
0: yeah everything's hard about everything turns out Uh, all right well that's all the time we have for this week we'd like to thank our producers fat bard and sampa da costa for putting the podcast together and thanks to our community moderators who keep our discord running to get more involved in the butterscotch community just go to podcast where we have links to the discord a way for you to donate and links to the archives thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week goodbye (laughs) bye